we're picking up here in John. Um, sorry, the <laughs> Kelly, can you turn on the, the slide show? Is that okay? See, a little, all the little details. But in John, we're picking up here in John um, 7, and we'll start our study just reading verse 37 and 38. So John 7, 37 and 38, it says... On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. As we saw there in verse 37, it says it was the last day, the great day of the feast. The setting is there in Jerusalem during one of the three pilgrimage feasts of Israel. This particular one, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, or, you know, the, so this, this feast, it was the previous seven days, Jewish people from all over had gathered there in Jerusalem from all over Israel and even beyond. They had been staying in these little huts and shacks that they had built, camping out basically under the stars. But the reason that they were camping out in these booths, these huts and shacks, was specifically to remember the way that the Lord had been faithful to provide for them, the Israelites, during their 40 years of wilderness wanderings, in the desert after the Lord brought them out of Egypt. They remembered the Lord's faithfulness to provide for them and to to bring them through into the promised land. But during this time, they were also rejoicing and celebrating and thanking the Lord for the harvest that they had just previously finished collecting. It was a joyous occasion. It was full of fun and worship and praise. And all through the feast for the seven days, there was what was called the water ablation. It was a part of the the celebration itself where for seven days in a row, a priest would go down to the pool of Siloam, which was there at the bottom part of the city of Jerusalem, the pool of Siloam. And there as people would gather together and they would celebrate the fact that the priest would take that water, draw it from the pool of Siloam, and then walk it up through the city, in through the southern steps of the Temple Mount, onto the Temple Mount, and then there on the altar, they would pour this water upon the altar and upon the sacrifice. And it would commemorate the fact that that water was so significant. That was the water in which King Solomon was anointed as king. That was the pool in which King David was anointed as king. And this water oblation during the Feast of Tabernacles would be a reminder for them of while they were wandering through the desert and the people were thirsty, right? Millions of them out in the desert. And you know what you need when you're in the desert? You need water. (laughs) And it didn't take long for the people out there in the desert before they started to thirst and they started murmuring to Moses, did you bring us out here in the desert to die in the wilderness? I mean, why didn't you just, weren't there enough graves in Egypt? You could have just left us in Egypt. And there in the wilderness, God told Moses, Moses, take your rod and strike the rock. 
And Moses took his rod and he struck that rock. And when he struck that rock, water flowed out of that rock. And the water was enough to where it, it quenched and satisfied the thirsts of all of that multitude there in the wilderness. It was that same time where later as the people began to thirst again. And then God said to Moses, Moses, just speak to the rock. And Moses was so frustrated with the people that he took his staff and he's like, you people, how long do I have to put up with you? And he struck the rock again. And God brought water from that rock. But because he struck the rock again, God said, Moses, you didn't hallow me in what I was going to communicate to my people. And therefore, you don't get to go into the promised land. You see, God was giving the people a picture of that through that rock. The rock that was struck. The, the wording is specifically like this. Moses, when you strike that rock, I will stand before you. So that as if when Moses was striking the rock, he was striking God. And that, at that point, the water flowed. That the smitten rock provided and quenched the thirst of the people. And then the next time, all he had to do was speak to the rock. Because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, they all drank from that same spiritual drink, from that rock that followed them in the wilderness. That rock was Christ. You know how many times Jesus had to be crucified for you? Only once. He doesn't have to be crucified over and over again. And if any time you are drying up, you don't need to see Jesus crucified again. You just need to speak to the rock. You just need to restore the relationship. But there was a picture that was there. And they would be celebrating in this water oblation the way that God provided for them supernaturally water in the wilderness. And even in that, it was speaking of Jesus. So beautiful, the, the picture and the typology of it all. But another thing that they would do during that water oblation, there would be so much rejoicing and celebration because it was all looking at the way God had provided for them. The, the, the Levites would play music and they would sing. Another ceremony during the Feast of, of Sukkot or booths or tabernacles would be the illumination of the temple, a festival of light, where in the court of the women at the Temple Mount, they would erect these 75 foot tall, according to the Mishnah, 75 foot tall, they would call them candles. I would say it's a little bit more than a candle, right? I think of little candles. Okay, when I first was a youth pastor in Arizona, we did what was called a glamis candle. And this glamis candle, what it was, was we took plywood. It was, we took eight sheets of plywood. We, eight sheets that are, you know, eight feet tall each, so 16 feet we built it into this giant chimney with a four-foot gap on the bottom for airflow. And then we filled it with two-by-fours and two-by-sixes that we've got just scrap. And then we, we're out in the middle of the desert. We light that thing, and the air starts to suck in from the bottom. <sighs> Creates this, like, jet. And then it's just blowing flame out the top. And, the, I mean, this is our youth group, right? So the kids are like, this is the craziest youth group ever. Fire 60 feet in the air from our glamis candle. Now, okay, when I think of a candle like that, they had these giant 75 foot that up at the top, but the, what they would do at the top was they would take all of the old priestly garments, 
from the previous year that had been worn out, and they would put those in the top of the candle, and they would cover it with oil. They would have the sons of the priests climbing a 75-foot-high ladder. I don't know if you ever climbed, like, a 20-foot ladder, but that's a little, like, woohoo, you know, like, you're bouncing around. But, I, I mean, I wouldn't want to climb a 75-foot one, but mom down there, like, that's my boy, you know, they're all excited. They light these candles, these 75-foot tall candles, and it would say that during the light of those candles that every courtyard in Jerusalem would be illuminated. And so during this feast of tabernacles, they were remembering God's faithfulness in the harvest, God's faithfulness to bring them through the wilderness, God's faithfulness to provide for them water in the wilderness, God's faithfulness to provide light in the midst of their darkness, God's faithfulness to provide. And for seven days, they would celebrate this. They would celebrate. And after that, the lighting of the candles, there would be so much joy that it was said that even the most pious members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling class, the most pious members of the Sanhedrin and the heads of the religious schools, even they would dance late into the night. Because of the joy, it reminded me of Garrett and Dana's wedding. Or even some of us more stuffy folk danced the night away. And we weren't dancing just to be wild. Like, okay, I, don't, I only dance in my kitchen in front of my kids. And it's usually around mealtime because I'm so excited. Yeah, we're going to have some food. And I pull out all the weird dance moves and my kids are like, Dad, you know. But that night, I didn't care what I looked like. Because I was celebrating, and what was I celebrating? God's faithfulness in the lives of my friends. And I remember Garrett, you know, sometimes Garrett can be kind of like Eeyore, right? Good morning, everybody. <laughs> but Garrett was like, he was pulling out some, you know, like, wow, this guy's celebrating the Lord. The joy of what God has done was the joy of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was celebrating God and his faithfulness. And they would hold these torches and they would sing psalms of praise. And Jerusalem as a city would absolutely shine and reverberate with the celebration. But that was seven days. As I've told you two weeks ago, the Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day plus one-day celebration. So as you look at it, it's for seven days this, but then there's the eighth day, and that day was considered a solemn assembly. It was a time of reflection that all the festivities would, would stop. No more in tabernacles, no more out under the stars on the eighth day. They would show up like they were expecting the water oblation, but no priest would show up to bring the water. They would show up like the candles were going to get lit in the, the festival of light, but nobody would climb up to light them. They would show up just like every other day, but that what would be lacking was that they expected the Messiah, when he comes, that he alone would bring that feast into its continuation. They expected that it was the Messiah that would fulfill the Zechariah prophecies of the Feast of Tabernacles where all the nations would gather together to Jerusalem 
that only the Messiah could bring that, that unity of the Gentiles bringing them in, according to Zechariah. So they were waiting. The eighth day, that's the Messiah's day. The one who would unite them, that would be the Messiah's day, where it's said there in Malachi 3.1 that he would bring his glory into the temple. That was the Messiah's day. So the eighth day was considered the great day of the feast because it looked forward to that great day when the Messiah would bring about the fulfillment of all of God's promises. But until that, it showed promises left unfulfilled. And so in light of all the joy of what had already been, but then sadness and longing because of promises left unanswered. It was this day, that last day, that great day of the feast that looks forward to that great day of God. And it was on this day that Jesus stood there and cries out with a loud voice. And he cries out an open invitation to whoever would hear. And that invitation is this. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The day of seven days of water oblation and now the eighth day and no one's coming with water. Hey, anybody thirsty? The thirst quencher's here. The one where, remember when Moses provided water from the rock? Where water that'll quench your thirsty soul has come. This beautiful and open invitation. It's not, if any Sanhedrin here, or any Pharisees here, or any scribes or lawyers here, if any ultra-Orthodox Jewish people here, if you got the right beard and the right hat and you're listening today, if you've done all the legwork, then welcome in, come on down, but everyone else, no. It's not that. It's an, if anyone hears... Did you come ready? That doesn't matter. You can be ready now. Did you come thinking about God? Doesn't matter. If you're thirsty, you can come. It's an open invitation. And it's so beautiful because that's the way that the gospel is. It's open to anyone. To anyone. Like the invitation that Jesus gave before. Wow, that's really pixelated. <laughs> Welcome to the video games of your childhood. <laughs> and then all the young ones are like, my childhood? What do you mean? <laughs> my video games were great. Final Fantasy 22, or whatever. Um, so I will interpret this to you. John 3.16 John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That whoever would believe in him. There's no special class, no special condition, no certain little lucky group and... Sorry for all you other unfortunate souls. 
It's whoever. Salvation is open and it is available to anyone. Luke chapter 2. There we go. (laughs) That's not doing anything right now. I'm just going to pretend. Okay, Luke chapter 2, verse 10. Remember at the, the pronouncement of the Messiah's birth? Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. From the very pronouncement of his birth, that Christmas morning, this is good news for all people. And as 1 Timothy 2 Verse 3 and 4 says, I'm going to just turn it there. It, it Maybe you can squint your eyes and read it. Or take off your glass. <laughs> no. um, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. What? All men to be saved? I've been out witnessing, and I've come across people who honestly believe that they cannot be saved. I remember one man in particular who believed that what he had done in his lifetime had completely disqualified him from being able to ever receive mercy from God. And yet the gospel is, if anyone thirsts, If anyone thirsts. I remember it was a really exciting find for me. I was in a thrift store one time, and I like looking for books, because books are like treasure. And I found this amazing leather-bound, like fancy gold-embossed edition of a book by this guy who became really famous. His name was Charles Darwin. You know that name? And he has this book, right? And the book was called On the Origin of the Species. No, just kidding. That's the short name of it. That's the one that's like, well, the other one, the other real name for it's too hard to say, so let me just give you the short name. On the Origin of the Species. The true name of his book was the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. That's the name of Darwin's book. The preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. And what's the end game of his worldview that most of the modern world is built on today? The, the, the sum total of his worldview is Nature is not looking for a way. Nature is completely innate. But what's going on right now is some things will get to spread their DNA into the next generation. And others must be weeded out because they are the weak. They are the faulty. And they must be eradicated from the gene pool. So it's either you get to stay in the gene pool, congratulations, or you must be eradicated from the gene pool because you are not worthy. That's the end of Darwinism. And so what's here today? The preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. And what's died off? The weak, 
the junk, the ones with bad traits that would cause them to do dumb things. And eventually they'll be weeded out of the gene pool. Does that sound like harsh and blunt? But that's what, that's what the modern world is built on. You tell kids, kids, congratulations, you're an accident. You think there's purpose to your life? Nope. No purpose except for purpose that you invent. Go ahead and have your happy feelings and invent your dream world and stay happy until you die. But whether or not your, gen your genetics, your DNA survives, that's up to whether or not you're a favored race in the struggle for life. And from that, there are lifestyles now that are being promoted that are denying or in that lifestyle, there is no possibility of sending your genetics into the next generation. So according to the philosophical backdrop of the world that we're living in right now, that is because you are weak, you are broken, and you must be eradicated from the gene pool. You are hopeless. And everything's going to be better off when your DNA is not spreading with all of your traits and tendencies. Let me just tell you right now, God doesn't make junk. God doesn't make junk. And no matter who you are or what choices you've made or whatever your direction has been up till this point, you are not beyond the hope of redemption. There's no this, let's eradicate you from the gene pool. There is God who shed his own blood to welcome and usher you into his presence forever. And to welcome you gladly in the presence of his holy angels. Welcome you as his own. As it says in Hebrews, for which cause he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Welcome, my brother, the creator of the universe would say, because of his redemption in Christ Jesus. The gospel, the good news from God is so much different than what the world tries, the pictures the world try to paint. I remember this old song by a guy named Don Francisco. The words are, ha, you can't even read it. I don't know why I try. I keep thinking, maybe it'll just fix itself, but I'm going to keep trying. It says, even though my name's been spattered by the mire in which you lie, I'd take you back this instant if you'd turn to me. Because I don't care where you've been sleeping. I don't care who's made your bed. I already gave my life to set you free. And there is no sin that you could imagine that's stronger than my love. It's all yours if you'd come home again to me. That's the gospel. Jesus says, if anyone, if any, what an open invitation. If any would come. Oh, man, how big and how beautiful. It's open and available to all. If anyone would come. See, God created us. He created us in his image. And he created us with that, to have fellowship with him. 
And that longing for fellowship with God is seen everywhere. It's seen in every culture and anywhere you go. It can be seen in ancient civilizations and in modern civilizations, in different cultures all around the world, whether it's like trapped in ice or cooking in heat. Whatever that people group is, you will find it there within their society. What will you find? You will find temples, houses of worship, expressions of religiosity. You know what you don't find when you go into like the beaver's nest? Little like, you don't, you don't find like the beaver's house of worship. You don't go up to the bird's nest and be like, oh, there's the bird's hymnal. They're just singing their songs, right? They're not singing like, you know, you, you, you don't go out to the, like the Sahara and find, you know, like different. You don't find that among the animals. You don't find that down among the fish, you know, like, oh, look at this is where the sharks pray. Well, P-R-E-Y maybe, but not, you know, you don't see that. Because we're different. The heavens declare the glory of God. There's his handiwork in all that he's made. But there's something different about you. You're created in his image. And in that, there's a longing. And whether you understand that longing or not, it's there. I mean, just like today, I love the fact that Jesus says, if anyone thirsts. Some of you are so thirsty And you don't even know you're thirsty. And you've confused thirst for hunger. I'm telling you that. Like, there are some times where there's a craving going on in your body. If you just drank a bunch of water, the craving would go away. Because you're dehydrated. And your body is telling, is beginning, your brain saying, you know, the only way that this person is ever going to get the water is if they get it through metabolic water. So we better eat lots of lipids because then they can at least break down some of that fat and get some hydration. There's science behind that, but I don't, I'm not a scientist. Talk to the scientists later. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, or you think, my whole life, every time I've been thirsty, I go to the fridge and I get a Coca-Cola. Or let's make it even worse. I get a diet Coca-Cola. <laughs> you know what you're thirsting for? The water that's in it. But you know what all the junk that's on top of that does? It sets you back instead of setting you forward. You never see like at the, you know, the proud sponsor of the Summer Olympics. Look at our athletes chugging their two-liter bottles of Pepsi. You don't win those by drinking that stuff. But yet we get to a place where we thirst for that. We're thirsty, we are longing for hydration, but we've learned to sacrifice the real thing for a cheap imitation that actually does us more harm than good. And we do that spiritually with different expressions of religiosity, with different like pursuits for achievement, whether it's academic achievement or financial achievement or some kind of political achievement or whether it's, you know, whatever it might be. This desire to like validate our existence by accomplishing something. I have friends that when I graduated from college, they stayed in college. And even today, guess what? They're still in school. 
Like, dude, when are you going to graduate? But there's something that's like, I mean, it's the, the sense of accomplishment is awesome. To learn is awesome. I get that. But then there's also, you get among this, this community of academia that they're all patting each other's back. And that becomes your social group. And you're like, oh, yeah, let's keep up with it. Let's keep up with it. And it, it's like, it's, it's fine. But at the same time, there's this, there's a thirst that's in there. And you're trying to quench it with something that, you know. Jeremiah, <laughs> it's there, trust me. Jeremiah 2, 13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and two, they've hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So that expression of living water, that would be what you would consider like an artesian well. A spring that just flows out of the earth on its own. You don't need a pump. You don't need, it's just, it's there. It's coming out. The entire Jordan River, we saw that while we were there in Israel. It's sourced by three different artesian wells that come up out of the ground. Uh, one was in Banis, one was in Caesarea Philippi, and I can't remember the other one. But they all come together. It's just, it just flows. Living water. The other option if you live in a dry and desert place, you can either find a spring or you can carve out what's called a cistern. They have them down in like Huelo, right? They have like catchments, plastic, big PVC tanks or stainless steel tanks or whatever. And then you, all this different, you know, system to run the rainwater to, to stay there in your catchment. But a cistern would be like that, but carved out of a rock. And hopefully you get a solid piece of rock, not one that has like a big crack in the middle of it. And even still, you might do all that work because it's going to take a lot to chip out a big old water catchment out of rock. It's like, what are you doing? Uh, I'm going to make something where I can finally have water to drink. Don't you think you're going to die of thirst before you get it done? Maybe. You, but you're, you're digging this out. And you get this thing all dug out. And there might be a hairline crack that you didn't even know was there. And the rain comes and it fills your cistern and then the water starts to go away. Like a small crack in your head gasket and you have to keep changing your oil. It just goes away. That would be terrible because everything that you're counting on, the rain comes, it fills it up, and then it just goes away. Terrible. But even if your cistern works... You don't want to exchange living water for a cistern. Because the day after the rain comes, it's great. Fresh water from the clouds filtered by, you know, the, the whole the, it, the natural distillation process of evaporation. And, oh, yeah, this is great. But then the water sits in the cistern and it sits there for a week. Gets a little funky. Sits there for a month, gets a whole lot more funky, get all the algae that's there. How long does that water have to sit before the mosquitoes start putting their larvae in there? Little frogs start finding their way in? You know, like, it's just, wow, how long? It's wet. You could probably drink it, but it's going to be nasty water. And all the while, you had water flowing just right out of fresh 
stream right out of the mountains. My people committed these two evils. They forsook me, the fountain of living water, and then they carved out for themselves cisterns, even broken cisterns that can't even hold water. And for you, what's it, what's it that's causing you to forsake the fountain of living water? Is it that career path or that new hobby or that new car, which whatever it is might be fun and exciting for a little while. But if it's a broken cistern, eventually it's all going to run out. And it's be like, oh, my new car. That's so rusty now. You know, you have guys that are out there, never lease a car until you live on the ocean in Maui. <laughs> right? like, and you're like, take this rust bucket back. <laughs> no. um, You'll never find the peace for your soul until you come to him. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew, (laughs) I keep doing this, Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. A lot of us get as far as we hunger and we thirst, but we don't know what it is that we're hungering and thirsting for. Hungering and thirst, and you think, what am I hungering and thirsting for? If you fill your belly with the wrong things, you will continue to hunger and thirst. You hunger and thirst for, oh, maybe it's cotton candy. No, you're going to be hungry again. Hunger and thirst. And if, once you figure that out, it's for righteousness. That's when you're filled. Psalm 63, verse 1 through 3. Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise you. My soul thirsts for you, it says. And so the invitation of Jesus, come, come to me. All you who thirst, come to me. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Again, it's the the prerequisite isn't like you have to be the right race or the right class. It isn't that you have to be one of the lucky chosen few. It's if you're weary and heavy laden, come, come to me. Revelation 3.18, he says, Or not Revelation, sorry, I was going to do that one, but I'm going to skip that one. Isaiah 55, verse 1 and 2. I love this one. It's kind of like the pigeon verse in the Bible. Because here's how it starts. Ho! Exclamation point. (laughs) Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money... So look at that. Financial status, that's not a prerequisite. Do you have no money? Come! But I can't afford it. Perfect! Come! Come to the waters. Come!
come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Amazon daily is getting clicks from people buying things that don't satisfy. I'll tell you the truth. I bought this pulpit on Amazon and I am not satisfied. (laughs) The angle is like warp speed. It's weird. Anyway, side issue. (laughs) Why do you spend your money? (laughs) No, no, no. Listen carefully to me, he says in Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. And eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. And all the way to the end in Revelation 22, 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires. Let him take the water of life freely. So over and over and over again, the Bible repeatedly offers, whoever will, come, be forgiven, have a close relationship with God. Why? Because God loves you. He created you for relationship. He knows that You will never be at rest for your soul. You will never quench the thirst of your soul unless you're finding your rest and your satisfaction or your satiation in him. Come to him. And you will find. And look again at the promise that Jesus gives there in verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I love this because sometimes you're like, oh man, I just, I just need, I just need an encounter with the Holy Spirit. I just need the Holy Spirit, just touch my life, fill my life. But the promise here isn't just getting enough to get by. It's not to where you just like have this experience and then, oh, I can squeak through the rest of the week and then limp back into church on Sunday just to get another refill and back off again. Just enough to hang on for dear life. But here it's enough to share. Enough to bless others. He says, out of his belly, Out of his innermost being will gush rivers of living water. Not just that you come to God, the fountainhead of living water, but somehow he relocates his own fountainhead inside of you. And then you just begin to flow, communicating to the world around you all of how God, how good God is. And that like you become enough, not just for you, but for others. And it's not because you're enough in your own. It's because of the Lord. And God, in his grace, he always overflows his boundaries. That's just how good he is. He didn't need to create anything. But he created. Why? Because he overflowed himself with goodness. But that's another topic. Um, I love this. A true sign of the spirit at work in someone's life isn't that they got chicken skin. Oh, Holy Spirit. feel funny. I'm going to go back and yell at my kids and 
cuss at my neighbor and live a selfish life. So get me my beer. A true sign of a, being impacted and an encounter with the Holy Spirit is that you begin to overflow. Is that your concern goes beyond your own selfishness. Lord, I'm here again and you see my needs and so give me my stuff. I'm claiming my wealth and I'm claiming my health and I'm claiming all my goodies. A true sign of the Holy Spirit is you begin to care for and minister and serve and bless others. You read Galatians, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. Like, it's not selfish fruit. It's selfless. It's for the benefit of somebody else. What good is it like? The fruit of the Spirit is loving yourself. I don't need no spirit to do that. I don't need the spirit to, like, you know, be selfish. I need the spirit to be rescued from myself. When people tell me that they've, what they have found is only satisfying them, I don't know if it's real. But when I see people become just so alive to what God is doing that they want to be useful for the kingdom and bless other people, they see a need, they go, they try to serve, they try to make an impact. Now that is exciting. That is the spirit of grace doing exactly what Jesus said would happen. Rivers of living water flowing through them to others to help satisfy the need. Is that the life you're living today? Is that the joy that you're experiencing? If not, Jesus says, come, come. You know, like, but, but, but I got to work a little harder to, to, to make myself a proper fountain. Just come. Come to him. And from that, verse 39, but this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now what? At this point, you're like, wait, what do you mean the Holy Spirit was not yet given? I read Genesis 1 verse 2, and after the creation of the heavens and the earth, it says that the Spirit of God was hovering upon the face of the deep. I see the Spirit of God all through the Old Testament. I see the Spirit of God coming upon Saul. Uh, uh, I see the Spirit of God coming upon David. I see the Holy Spirit moving in the lives of the prophets. I see the Holy Spirit through the Old Testament. What are you talking about? The Holy Spirit was not yet given. I see the Holy Spirit at work in the fact that when Mary's like, how is this going to be possible? I don't know a man. And he says, the power of the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. That which is born of you is of the Holy Spirit. Okay, well then, what are you talking about? The Holy Spirit is not yet given. Now, first of all, Jesus said a lot of things that the disciples didn't understand. Until after he was crucified, buried, and rose again. In John chapter 2, verse 19 through 22, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It's taken us 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said to them. 
And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus said. So after he rose again, they're like, oh, that's what he meant. Remember, as he's on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified, and he's saying, I'm going to Jerusalem, and men will take me captive, and they will treat me bad, and they will crucify me, and in the third day, I'll raise again. And they're like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. Can I sit on the right hand of your throne when you're with, can, when you establish your kingdom, can we sit there? Can I, can I have that? Like, are you guys not hearing me? He's been telling them all along, and they're like, What? And then when it happened, oh, that's what he meant. And this is one of those issues of the Holy Spirit. They didn't get it until Jesus was glorified, dead, uh, crucified, buried, and rose again. Now, I have a lot to say concerning the Holy Spirit, but we're going to wait till we get to John 14 to do that. So there's these couple big words, right? When you're studying God, the study of God is called theology. When you're specifically studying Jesus, that's called Christology. When you're specifically studying the Father, that's called Paterology. But when you specifically consider and study the Holy Spirit, that's called Pneumatology. And each of them are awesome fields of study. We have a lot in terms of this study of the Holy Spirit, but I'll wait till Jesus really begins to unpack this topic, and he does that in John 14 and also in John 16. But here, I just want to mention one quick thing. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a beautiful new reality that wasn't available to the saints in the Old Testament. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit was not available to the saints in the Old Testament. They would have the Holy Spirit's presence upon them, but not permanently indwelling them. That indwelling of the Holy Spirit is, as it says in Ephesians, the earnest of our inheritance. It's that seal of the purchased possession until he brings us home. When you become a believer, the Holy Spirit indwells your life and he seals you until that day that you are home with, with God. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would be upon someone, would be empowering somebody, but not the indwelling. That's why David could say in Psalm 51 verse 11, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. That's not something that believers have the Holy Spirit taken from them. The Holy Spirit is a permanent seal of your redemption, that you are going home. But now at the resurrection, after Jesus is buried and rose again, John 20, verse 20 through 22, now when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And at that point, the disciples were born again in the way that we would understand that now. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit because Jesus has now been glorified and now the Holy Spirit. John 14, verse 16 and 17 
Jesus is, and again, that's John 14. That's part of when we go and we get to unpack the pneumatology part. John 14, 16 and 17. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. Now catch this. Here he goes. For he dwells with you and will be in you. He is with you, but will be in you. And that's that indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When, Wow. We can get to that, though, in John 14. Um, but from that, let's just move on. Verses 40 through 45. It says, Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, they said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, will Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. This is so funny. Now, first of all, people are believing. And they're not believing that he's like some miracle worker. They're specifically believing that he is the Messiah. That he is the prophet that Moses spoke about. That he is the Christ. And they're like, this is him. But then the question came up, but wait, 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 wait. Isn't the Messiah supposed to be born in Bethlehem of the lineage of David? Like, we know Jesus is from Galilee, Nazareth. But the Bethlehem thing, like, that's prophecy. That's Micah 5. Messiah is supposed to come out of Bethlehem. See, they didn't understand that, yeah, he was, mom and dad were living in Nazareth. And then there was this crazy king who put out this edict that all the world should be taxed in the city in which they were born. And so Joseph, being of the house and lineage of David from Bethlehem, took his pregnant wife, who was great with child, on this journey through the Judean wilderness all the way to Bethlehem. And right when they got there, she went into labor in the fulfillment of prophecy so anytime that you start having to feel bad about paying taxes, man, I hate these taxes. Just remember that Joseph probably felt the same way, and that paved the way for the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Anyway, God is still in charge, even when there's crazy politicians in power. Um, that's a weird side note. It's true, though, but, but not my point. They didn't know about Bethlehem. Now, People are starting to believe, but the Pharisees are losing their minds. So they're like, go and arrest him. So here comes the officers. They go to arrest Jesus. But while they go to arrest him, there's a crowd around. And so they're like, oh, if I arrest him while he's talking, it's going to cause like a riot. We can't have that. So I got to wait for him to finish talking. Then we'll arrest him. But they come back to the Pharisees and the Pharisees are like, so where is he? Why didn't you arrest him? Like, how you had one job. And I could imagine how the conversation went. You know where he was? Why didn't you bring him? Well, you know, it's kind of hard to explain. 
Like we went, we were going to arrest him, but we figured let's listen to him first. Once he's finished, then we'll take him. And while he was talking, something happened. Yeah, I know that we came to take him captive and we ended up being captivated. We came to arrest him and our attention was arrested. I don't know what happened. We were just listening and somehow he got through us. We became so wrapped up in what he was saying, we totally forgot what we were going to do. And then they end, they end with this. We never heard anyone speak like this. Just the power of his words. Not even targeted words. Just speaking the word. And it got through. But now we see the bitter hatred of his enemies in verse 47 to 52. It says, then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? Well, actually, yeah. Remember back in John 3, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, he came to Jesus by night and said, we know that no one can do what you're doing unless God be with them. There was another one. Remember Joseph of Arimathea who actually gave his unused tomb for the body of Jesus to be laid in? A leader and a ruler of the, the Jews. In verse 49, but this crowd does not know that the, um, that this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And then here's this guy who believes in him, Nicodemus. He who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. No prophet has arisen out of Galilee? What? Um, actually, it's likely that there were three prophets that arose from Galilee. First of all, Jonah, in 2 Kings, it is obvious that he is from, Cal from Galilee. And then also, Nahum and Hosea were most likely from Galilee. They would have known this. But here they are, they're triggered to the point to where they're being completely irrational. These are the guys that know the law, and they're like, wait, there's no prophet that comes out of Galilee? Actually, yeah. And now they just start making stuff up. Now, in closing, I'd just like to loop back to that invitation of Jesus, though. That general to anyone, no matter what you've been through, no matter where you are today, no matter how you came here, if anyone thirsts, come. Are you thirsty today? Have you been running on substitutes that are only making your life worse? Don't forsake him. Don't go anywhere but to him. He says, come to me. What? Some hillbilly from Galilee? Can anything good come out of Nazareth, they said? What? Was he born in a barn? Well, actually, kind of. But the thirst quencher, the one who came down from heaven, he came lowly. He came despised. He came rejected by men, and yet he came to set the captives free. He came to seek and save that which was lost. And now if anyone thirsts, today, come, come and drink freely. The only prerequisite for you 
is that you recognize your thirst and that you come. You know what the root word of responsibility is? Response. And this is the work of God, that you believe on him who he sent. Your response is required. Just come. Come and drink freely of what Jesus alone can provide for you. Let's pray.